1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, a mystery illness in Vanessa Potter's Patient H69, and then the long relationship between humans and pigs in Pierre Spry Marquez's Pig Pork. Vanessa Potter is a former television producer turned science communicator. Since her mystery illness, which will uh, become apparent as we talk in this interview, Vanessa has worked on science art projects with neuroscientists at the University of Cambridge, given a TEDx talk in Ghent, Belgium, and written several articles for The Telegraph and Marie Claire. She's currently working on a collaborative EEG project with her science friends in Cambridge, and just hot off the press been nominated as an inspiring woman in the inspiration awards which you can vote for online vanessa is the author of patient h69 the story of my second sight vanessa welcome to little atoms Thank you very much. What a wonderful introduction. Let's talk about something about your life before Hmm. the episode that this book
0: is about. Okay, so like you say, I was a TV producer. I worked in the London advertising industry for 16 years, uh, mainly working for ad agencies. So I'd spent my career making TV ads, ads for toilet roll, radio ads for the army, a whole selection of different things. And I'd actually taken a little break because I had two very small children. They were only two and four at the time. So I took the summer holidays off and I was in just at the other end of that and getting my daughter ready to go to her brand new school. It was reception. So she was starting. So I I was putting time aside for the kids and then bang. Yes, everything changed.
1: So where were you when you first noticed that something was up?
0: Well, actually, it's really difficult to know when it all started because I had this really awful bug, like a knock-you-out, worse-than-flu, kind of emergency doctor, kind of two-week bug. I got to the side of that, and on that weekend that I started to feel better, we went off to the Malvern show. And I coped, I did the show, came home, then just felt rotten on the Sunday night. That was the first time I didn't feel right again. And then on the Monday morning when I woke up, that's when the very first kind of obvious symptom kicked in and that was a sense of feeling very dizzy, just weird. I was unstable, I was unbalanced. Um, I felt like there was a fuzzing in front of my eyes. Very difficult symptoms to describe because actually you could easily confuse them with being exceedingly stressed or something. Mm. It was that kind of static that you get when you're in shock maybe. So very strange symptoms and that was that Monday morning.
1: And so you go to the doctors, Mm. and of course, what can you say? I feel a bit weird, there's something not quite right. So what's your first contact with medical professionals like at that point?
0: Actually, it was very good. I saw a locum doctor, and she could easily have just sent me away. Stressed mother very easy to label me as that but actually she was extremely thorough and she did a lot of tests which I now understand were testing my vestibular system and of course that was all over the place so I felt very nauseous and very dizzy when I moved my head so that she was alerted so she got me sent off to A&E pretty sharpish.
1: And so things rapidly progress what happened?
0: Yeah rapid is the word. I spent a very frustrating first day in hospital got sent home couldn't find anything wrong But the next morning when I woke up, which was actually my daughter's fifth birthday, and as the second I opened my eyes, my heart sank because I just knew something was really wrong. The world was muddy. It was like covered in a brown, murky haze. And even though I was blinking my eyes, it wasn't clearing. And as I looked around my room, I think I described it at the time as it's like I've got sunglasses on and I'm inside but of course I didn't. So it was very frightening and I went straight downstairs. I don't even think I spoke to my husband. I just looked at him and said, we're back to A&E. And we did. We just went straight off. And then things went very fast from there. I never left hospital again. And within 72 hours, that murky brown haze had basically gone into like a halo and my sight diminished literally hour by hour. I described it as kind of Every time I blinked my eyes, I washed away a bit more of sight because that's what it was like. I stared at a notice board and I could see the letters fading, which is just horrifying. So within 72 hours, all my sight had gone. I was completely blind. But also what had happened is I started with this strange numbness in the just in my fingertips, like on a very cold day where your fingers are frozen. It was like that. But then it crept. And in fact, it crept so quickly, I didn't even know. And so I remember trying to stand up at one time and my legs were numb. I didn't even know. I mean, that's when the shock was starting to hit me because it was like, what is happening? And of course, the people around me, the neurologists that I ended up with were like, we don't know.
1: So within 72 hours, you're basically completely blind.
0: Yes, and actually completely blind. So no light whatsoever. The world was completely black.
1: So literally, this is what I was going to say, because I, having never been blind, just blithely imagine that it's just like when someone switches off the lights and you're in a really dark room. So was that what it was like?
0: No, it's much more enveloping. It's like it goes inside your head. And also, we rely upon our vision so much to orientate ourselves. So I was very, and because I had sensory loss in my arms and legs, I was disoriented. I didn't know if I was up, down. I didn't know where I was. I was very, very unsteady and unbalanced and frightened. So obviously you can't see, which is terrifying enough,
1: but also you're losing the ability to walk. And these are both incredibly scary things in themselves, but also you're left really feeling vulnerable. There's a scene in the book where you you actually when you're going home, your husband goes to, to move the car and you're left on a, on a bench mm. and you describe what it feels like to be ostensibly abandoned. there, incredibly vulnerable. Tell us about what that felt like.
0: Yeah, it's strange when you have no sight and those around you do. And as a sighted person, you are very acutely aware of that. And so all my other senses were on high alert. And what happens when you're major senses are knocked out is all the more subtle senses start to creep in so I had heightened awareness so I would have fear and I would have I would be an easy because I know there's people around me but I can't see them so I have all these signals and all these messages coming to me by other more subtle routes which are very confusing and it's very isolating actually because also if you look at me whilst I didn't look well you didn't know I was blind Um, and at that stage I was still legally blind. So, yes, it's it's a very... I wouldn't want to revisit it. It's a very frightening time. And, of course,
1: how is this affecting all the people around you?
0: Yeah, that was tough for them because um, I think my husband felt utterly helpless. You, you know, he was watching me deteriorate at such a rapid rate, and particularly when the doctors are going scratching their heads going, we don't know. I mean, they called me this mystery patient, which doesn't help, actually. And my children, they didn't see me. I was in hospital for 16 days... So that was tough on them. Although I say tough, actually, because it wasn't really. They were little, and they had friends and family taking them out for days. So I think they were very distracted. But then my daughter wanted to ring me, and we had um we had a conversation when I was still in hospital. So she was she was a bit older. So she and she still remembers it. My son was two; he doesn't. But yes, it, it unsettled all of us. It unsettled our community. You know, people were shocked and trying to help as much as they could. They used to drop food off so my husband didn't starve and people helped. People took the kids. The community really rallied around. Crystal Palace is an amazing place for that. There's a very strong bond between people there and people help each other which I'm very grateful for.
1: Still at this point we don't know what it is. So what's going on around you in terms of diagnosis? What are the doctors doing?
0: Well they did give me a the best guess diagnosis which is NMOSD which is basically a neurological autoimmune condition that's extremely rare and they couldn't really say much more than that because I'm not actually a classic case I don't really tick all the boxes but that was the closest they could get.
1: But that comes quite later on there's yeah. a period of time when they're saying rather than saying we know what it is there's a period of well it's not this it's not this it's not that.
0: Yeah, they ticked off the nasty list, as I used to call it. They'd come in and uh, they'd be a bit disappointed. Oh,
1: it's, not it's, a brain tumor. it's not a
0: brain tumour. It's uh, not a brain tumour. It's not cat scratch syndrome. Um, it's not multiple sclerosis. Oh, and I'm like, isn't that good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for doctors, of course, they want to get to the bottom of it. Mm. But I was very glad they were ticking those horrible things off the list.
1: Now, at the 72 hours, you're at this point where you're completely blind. That's terrifying. Things gradually start to improve and in some ways obviously it's great that you start to get better if that's the right word but things get even weirder at that point because interesting things start happening as your vision starts to come back don't they?
0: Yeah I mean you don't flip a switch and your vision comes back on and in fact I banned the word seeing for an awfully long time because it wasn't Anything like seeing had been to me before. So on the very first morning that I had some light sensitivity, which is all it was, it was a shift. So instead of opening my eyes to this kind of black hole, this suffocating blackness, it was dark grey. And there were some kind of vague light forms to one side. But I would have to spend... Long minutes sort of staring to work out if it was paler grey at one side. I mean, that's what kind of vision we're talking. So there was no faces, no lines, no shapes, no nothing. And it took several days, even before some lines would start to appear. But everything was flat. I described it as living inside an X-ray. And I think that's, to sighted people, that's probably the best way to describe it. It has a transparency, a sort of wateriness to it. There was nothing substantial. You said
1: after 16 days, you, you get out of the hospital, you go home. Before they let you home, there's this, which I'd never come across before, this amazing and rather British test to see whether or not you're allowed out of hospital. What did you have to do?
0: Yeah, I used humour a lot in the hospital. It's a coping mechanism. It's very successful. Um, If the poor woman who's blind in the bed is making jokes, everyone relaxes. And they took me off to do this. um, Yeah, it's a test basically to pass to get out of hospital and you have to make a cup of tea in this makeshift kitchen. And so I was cracking jokes, but I very quickly stopped cracking those jokes because it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. So yeah, I had to take I had to to stand first of all, take my own weight on my legs and stand at a countertop and turn a kettle on. In fact, I had to fill it with water first, turn a kettle on, find a mug, put a tea bag in and pour the water. It took me half an hour. And it was I was shaking and sweating by the end of it. But I did it. And it really made me realise how far I had to go. Yeah, I joked when I came in, but I didn't when I left that kitchen, no.
1: We keep talking about the blindness as if that's, you know, that's almost the the sexier aspect of of this thing. But of course, it's easy to forget that you lost the ability to to walk properly as well. So how did that come back?
0: I was not going to stay paralysed. I think that was a mental decision. It's like with my sight, I was so determined I was going to get it back. And so I I started doing all sorts of um, sensory stimulus and one of the occupational therapists says, look, you can stimulate. You can make your brain start talking to your feet again. So I was like, right. So I sent my husband and my sister-in-law off back off home and they came in with all of these objects. So we had cotton wool, we had scratchy scourers. I had um, a potato peeler. And then we'd rub these things up and down my feet to try and make me reconnect to what were basically numb lumps of flesh. They weren't uh, connected to me. But over time, by doing that it made those connections start up again. And I started to be able to wiggle my toes and get some sensory responses, which everybody was ecstatic about. Because if you start with that, you've got something to work with. And yeah, so I worked really, really hard on my mobility and with my fingers and my hands to try and stimulate some kind of uh, response.
1: And in terms of the vision, you've mentioned that your sight was basically like living in x-ray. So I was going to say black and white but grey basically mm. lots and lots of shades of grey yeah and it takes a long time for color to start seeping back into your vision and indeed that happens in in quite weird ways as well you start to experience a bit of synesthesia Tell us something about how you got colour back.
0: Yeah, colour was elusive. I desperately wanted colour. Colour doesn't, again, just ping back. It creeps. So I would be staring at our wooden floor. And of course, I know our wooden floor is like a pale pine colour. And I could almost be willing myself to see it. And that's kind of how it came. I would think, oh, does that feel a bit warmer? And I attached all the sensory responses before I had the visual cues. So reds and yellows would feel warmer. And I used to do lots of tests as well, get my husband and my family to hold coloured balls and I'd stare at them endlessly trying to fathom what colour this was. And so it was, it was bit by bit by bit and I had a very weird thing with red and green. When they started to reappear, they would flash intermittently between the two colours, which was very disorientating because I'd be staring at, you know, the green grass and it would be going red, green, red, green, red, green. i no, you're green, red, green, red, green. So it was like my brain was misfiring. But over time, that stabilised. But then when blue started to reappear, blue went absolutely crazy. And um, I turned a corner walking one day and I came across a blue recycling bin. Now, I knew it was a blue recycling bin. And this bin looked like it was lit up. It was sparkling and fizzing. And the blue was like an effervescence. It was actually moving. And I stood transfixed going, what is going on in my brain? But what I found is that if I went up to the bin and touched it, that fizzing would stop and it'd become a flat blue. And that was the synesthesia. And actually it was that that really prompted me to have to find out what was going on in my brain. That was really the critical moment. I was like, that is so weird. I have to know what it is. There's
1: a point in the book where when you're first in hospital and the doctors are, you know, have no idea what's going on, one doctor who you you call the bold doctor in the book... Says, I think I know what this is. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but you will get better. Mm. Were you always confident that you would get better?
0: Yes, I believed him, and and actually, this is something that happens with patients in very critical illnesses. I believe You, you get mantras, you get statements, and you absolutely replay them over and over. And that's what we did. We had a few of those, but yeah, it was kind of helpful. And actually, also by saying it's going to get worse, I felt like I was prepared. So it's OK, we're going to go all the way, but we're going to come back. And yeah, whether it's craziness or not, it kind of keeps you sane because you think there is literally light at the end of the tunnel. I'm an optimist. I'm, you know, I've I've always been that way. And I think that very much came into this situation. And yeah, I was determined that I was going to see again.
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today, I'm talking to Vanessa Potter. We're talking about her book, Patient H69, the story of my second sight. Vanessa, tell us who is Patient H69?
0: (laughs) Uh Patient H69 is a front. I hid behind this pseudonym because at the very beginning when I started writing, I wrote a blog, which was basically an extension of a diary that I had been recording on an mp3 player from actually from day one as crazy as it sounds but it manifested into this blog but I wasn't quite at a place where I wanted to put me out there so I invented this pen name and it the H69 is basically the beginning of my NHS patient number and it was great actually because it gave me a veneer and some protection until I kind of felt ready to stand up for myself, and by then, Patient 869 had become so well known that actually it became the title of the book, which it wasn't originally.
1: And at what point in this process did you actually start writing it down? When were you able to do the blog?
0: So, the blog started uh, at the beginning of 2014, so this is a year after I'd lost my sight. I had started trying to type before, and I got very frustrated. The first part of my writing I was typing at thirty six point so I could see the letters. And actually that became a form of therapy in itself because two weeks later I could reduce it to twenty eight and then twenty four and basically I remember the day it went down to eleven point courier. I was like, yes you know. It was a measure. And without realizing it I was kind of being scientific even about Mm -hmm. the writing. So the blog started being published in um, the beginning of 2014 but I'd been writing bits of it and putting it together before that
1: and beyond that the size of the font very sort of reductive therapeutic method of doing it did writing about it help
0: I get asked that question a lot I suppose so I just had such an overwhelming desire to communicate what had happened so yes it was a bit scary though because you're writing about something incredibly personal but I had such an overwhelming response to that blog, which I didn't promote, but people found it and, and I didn't write it as perhaps as normal blogs are, which are independent posts. I wrote it as a narrative and linear. So it was the story mm-hmm. starting on day one. And it's a gripping story and it's terrifying. And so people were following it. In fact, I was getting emails from people all around the world going, when are you posting next? I need to know what happened. I was like, OK. <laughs> and that's when I realised I kind of had to keep going.
1: And also, I mean, why did you want to do it? Was it, in some ways, being able to write that is somehow somehow a reaction to, the, you know, to, to losing a sense, a reaction to being in a position where you might have lost your sight?
0: yeah for me I suppose my motivation was to try and understand it myself there's a bit of kind of processing that goes on when you write a journey like that so there was a little bit of that but there was also making it real the more real it was and the more kind of big it was and if people became interested that kind of prompted me to go even further because I hadn't started doing the scientific research then so I think partly the response from other people and people would say what is it And I go, well I don't know you know what I'm going to find out And so it was all part of that process of communicating, coming to terms with it a little bit, but then going, okay, I'm curious now. There's another adventure, another sort of simultaneous journey starting as well. So let's talk about
1: that, getting into the scientific research then. How did you go about that?
0: Well, I went straight away to the neurologists who treated me. I was under a very specialist team up at uh, the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. And they were great. I said, look, I need to learn about this. I need to understand it. And they were fab. They said, right, go away. Read everything that Oliver Sacks has ever written. <laughs> Let's start with Island of the Colorblind." So I did. I don't know if they thought I would, but I did. I pretty much read everything. And that really lit a fire in me. And that led to other books. He talked about um, Stereo Sue. Uh, and so I went and read um, Fixing My Gaze by Sue Barry. And that was incredible because so many things in her book I related to. I read John Hull's book, Touching the Rock. I related so much to that. And so all of these things were just part of the journey. And I was learning as I went along. And then, of course, things would come up that I would then research. So I was sort of knitting together this very basic knowledge of our visual system. But then I know I I needed more help. So I started to um, try and network and find neuroscientists. (laughs) Now, that's not easy. But in the meantime, I was writing a neuroscience exhibition, because I basically thought that's what everybody would do. You mm. have this experience, you go and write. Art and... installation, it's of what, course. It's just what you do. I mean, I gen- I know I sound so insane saying that, but it just felt the most natural thing in the world to do. Because again, I wanted people to experience it. So I suppose I was in a different place from perhaps most people, most patients that contact neuroscientists, because a lot do. I went with a neuroscience exhibition and a way of communicating my experience. And some questions about it what i didn 't go to them was miracle cure, so I suppose that opened doors for me
1: so how do you let 's talk about that art installation. How do you go about communicating something that couldn 't really be more interior like How can you get across
0: to me? how this felt to you. Absolutely and uh, that is why I wanted to use EEG which is attaching electrodes to the scalp that record brain activity because I thought you know it's really hard to give such a subjective experience and in fact one of the things I wanted to um, tell people about was something I used during my recovery which was meditation and in fact visualisation and self-hypnosis all these mental tools and if you start talking about it and trying to put that as an exhibition it's oh it just doesn't work so I thought you need to come inside my head I thought well the only way to do that is through EEG so one of the installations I had about 25 used EEG and that's that was kind of my route in to Cambridge University because I contacted a neuroscientist there Dr Tristan Beckenstein, who studies consciousness so of course his lab uses EEG all the time and he was very interested and, and that was kind of the door in you know and that gave me access to vision scientists and a whole host of other people.
1: I want to talk about a couple of other aspects of of the science that you uncover in the book and some of the other neuroscientists. So there's um, Dr. Will Harrison. He's produced some images that are reproduced in the book of sort of visualizations of what you might have been seeing at that seeing x-ray point in your life. You talk about High and low spatial frequencies what's that
0: Oh, complicated <laughs> in a word um yes, yeah, so our visual system, I described lines a lot to will, and this is kind of how this all came about, and he said you're talking about spatial frequencies, which is how we detect different lines and patterns within our visual landscape and in fact this brings in contrast sensitivity as well which is that's one of the first things I got back which was well that was one of the part of my visual system that was deeply affected so when I started to see light areas and dark areas what I was actually seeing was the differences between those and his uh, visual algorithm was trying to depict the way that our brain likes to single out detail which are the high spatial frequencies. He was basically taking my descriptions. We worked together and bounced backwards and forwards on these images and stripped out loads of visual information just down to the spatial frequencies, which is basically they look like, I mean, they're very thin, watery images. And in fact, it was eerie looking at them because I was like, that's what it was like, which was great in some respects for him because he could go, right, cool. I can, you know, I can relate to this on a scientific level. So it was kind of educational for both of us in a weird way
1: and you mentioned the um the bin the blue bin and the the sort of fluctuation between the the red and green the ball on the lawn you talked to professor is it Jamie Ward he's a, a leading researcher into into synesthesia um what's going on in your brain when this is happening <laughs>
0: Well, we'd love to know. I'd still love to know. We know a little bit about perhaps what might have been going on. Um, Yes, I did talk to Jamie Ward initially just to find out if my descriptions matched what synesthesia might be, which is where our senses cross over. And yes, it's a weird form. It's not a classic form. Mine was colour touch. So in other words, when I saw a blue bin fizzing, my sense of touch affected my vision So that makes it pretty much, you know, a cross-modal thing. It makes it synesthesia, but not a standard synesthesia. It's actually called acquired synesthesia because you acquire it probably. I mean, you can acquire it for different reasons, but brain injury is a classic one.
1: You mentioned in the book, at the point of your deepest blindness, you were still dreaming in colour. Tell me about
0: that. Yeah, well, I think in some respects, this is like your brain practising seeing. And in fact, one of the reasons I use visualisation so much was so I could see. Because, of course, I didn't know it then, but our our visual system is in our brain. It's not our eyes. So we see with our brain. So I could still, in my mind's eye, see. And in fact, I got quite accomplished using visualisation. So I could actually, I pictured a beach and I could have the waves move and I could change the intensity of the blues And I think that manifested and went into my dreams. So all of that visualisation was basically my visual system keeping seeing alive.
1: And in terms of getting that colour vision back then, clearly there's a difference between, you know, having experienced colour before when you try to recover it compared to somebody who has been blind all of their life.
0: Yes. I mean, I had knowledge. I'd learnt the rules of seeing. So I'd learnt the rules of colour, which is why sometimes the experiences were so strange, because it didn't fit and that was one of the things I recorded a lot, where it was things did not fit. But then over time, it's like I would relearn and make them fit. Yeah, so I had a relationship with colour and I had quite a strong relationship with colour, I I realise now, probably through my job and doing photography and and being an artist. So I was quite sensitive to colour, which is why I think I had a, more of the subtle sensory cues telling me that something I was looking at whilst I couldn't see it as red, it felt red. So there's obviously visual information coming by non-visual roots. And I think having that prior relationship, of course, would be enormously helpful in reconnecting those dots and making my brain kind of identify and perceive that as red.
1: Just to finish off then, I wanna I want to talk about where you are now, I guess, because I asked at the end of the first part the doctor said you will get better and whether or not you were confident that you were going to get better. But there has been permanent damage, hasn't there?
0: Yeah, I am now partially sighted. I have some visual disturbances, so I don't have full colour. So I have some colour loss and I have like a visual disturbance over my entire visual field. And quite low contrast sensitivity, so it's difficult for me to differentiate like curbs or steps, things like that. Or in darkened areas, I struggle a little. And
1: is that that or will that continue to
0: improve? Hey, never say never. I'm an eternal optimist. And whilst, yes, I live with it. And absolutely, I get on with it. I have lots of strategies. I will never say that's how it has to be forever because of the incredible plasticity of the brain. I know how, how much it's already got me to here. And so, yes, I'm still curious on whether we can um, I can work on that and get any improvement.
1: And the final question, I guess, is NMO. Could it recur?
0: NMO is a recurring illness normally the doctors believe with me i had something called a monophasic episode which is basically a very big one-off hit you require particular antibodies to trigger nmo and i don't have those antibodies so fingers crossed they're right and the one-off was the one-off
1: i've been talking to vanessa potter we've been talking about patient h69 the story of my second sight which is out now from bloomsbury sigma books vanessa thank you so much for coming in and telling us your
0: story thank you (laughs) i <laughs>
2: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real
0: Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds
2: per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Helen Scales and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture. Pierre
1: spry is a communications officer at the University of Cambridge. A zooarchaeologist, her research has taken her across Europe and across time, from the late Iron Age back to the Ice Ages, identifying, classifying and decoding the meaning of animal remains in human-associated deposits. Originally from Spain, Pia is predisposed to a keen understanding, awareness and love of the pig, and the many tasty pork products that are so much a part of Spanish cuisine. And so that's led to Pig Pork Archaeology, Zoology and Edibility, Pia's book. So, Pia, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So, Pia, first of all, tell us what a zoo archaeologist is. What did you research?
2: Well, basically, a zoo archaeologist is an archaeologist of animal bones. But not in the sense that, in the sense of a paleontologist, but animal bones that are related to human existence. So these are animals that would have had some kind of relationships with the human beings. And what I what I did was analyze the kinds of bones that were uh, deposited in these archaeological sites. What kinds of animals there were coming from how they were being butchered how they were being skinned and so forth to sort of build a global picture of what humans were hunting what species they preferred or whether they were basing their their choices on what was available locally and so forth so sort of building a picture of I guess the original paleo diet in a way the the animal side of the paleo diet because of course they were also eating other plant foods it's not just all all meat.
1: Tell us about some of the places that you dug then. So you mentioned in the book Croatia mm-hmm. and Ukraine as places where you've actually, you've been on sort of expeditions looking for these boats.
2: Yeah, my first archaeological um, excavation was, in fact, in Cambridge <laughs> during the training dig that we did as undergrads. But I have spent most of my archaeological career working in Croatia Firstly, in the northern part of the country in Istria, which is a peninsula close to Slovenia and Italy. And then further south on one of the islands called Korcula, which is where Marco Polo was from, actually, during Venetian times. So I've I've sort of worked in different areas of the country and and different periods. And my PhD was on, on a Croatian site. I've also worked in, in Ukraine, trying to find Neanderthal sites in Ukraine. And I've also excavated in Libya um, as part of a project uh, that was being carried out in my department.
1: So why pigs then? How did you end up writing a book about pigs?
2: Well, I, I, I sort of tried to explain in the introduction that people were surprised to hear that I was writing a book about pigs because no one in archaeology associates me with pigs. They associate me with red deer, because red deer was a very, very common species in in the Paleolithic in Croatia and was consumed quite heavily. So it was a bit surprising for many people. But I wanted to learn about the pig, because obviously I knew a lot about red deer from my PhD, because it had featured so prominently in my diet as a child. But I had realized that I didn't know much about the animal behind it, and that just got me thinking about our relationship with food. How much do we know about where our food comes from? So I've been eating all sorts of pork products since a you know very young age, living in Spain, where you know people are pork obsessed. But I knew nothing about the pigs. I hadn't seen pigs. Pigs weren't in cartoons. I didn't get to see them in farms, and and I just felt there was a bit of a of a disconnect. And then I, I also wanted to see why there was this obsession with pork. And I, I have an, a historical interest in the Spanish Inquisition, and and I wanted to see if there was indeed a link that pork features so prominently in Spanish astronomy because it is the own well, not the only thing, but one of the things that um, Judaism and Islam have in common, that they have a taboo. So it was a very, not easy, but practical way the the inquisition to see who was abiding by these new catholic rules because it was something that was common to their two targets and that just one thing led to the next and before i knew it i was writing a proposal to write a book all about pigs and pork
1: so where does the pig that we would see in a field driving along today the domesticated pig where does that come from then
2: that comes so. There's two centres of domestication for the pig, um, independent centres, and the first one was in Turkey, in well, in certain areas of what is now Turkey, around nine thousand years ago, and then also in China, around also eight thousand years ago. Um, but obviously, it's it's a tricky subject because domestication is not something that happens overnight. So it's it's a gradual process. It's a it's a relationship between the the animal and the human, so we don't really know when this first interaction started to happen, but we can see that there was a change in in the bones of these animals from wild boar to domesticates in Turkey around that time and slightly later in in China, so those are the two centres of domestication that we know of so far.
1: And so obviously the wild boars that existed to begin with, they would have first of all how would how would human beings first have started interacting with the wild boars obviously they would have been hunting them but in terms of the steps toward domestication how would that relationship have developed
2: well there's there's different pathways to domestication and and the one that they think happened with with wild boar was they the wild boar approached human settlements in order to feed on the waste and gradually just got closer and closer so they In a way, people say that the pig domesticated itself. It wasn't the human specifically targeting the wild boar. And it was just a way of gradually getting closer to the point that then a strong bond developed between us and them. And that gradually led to their more full-on domestication and obviously changes in their physical appearance and their behaviour and so forth.
1: And then why pigs? I mean, obviously they're tasty, but there's aspects of the pig that makes it difficult to i guess we're obviously at the point now where you know agriculture has started so people are starting to settle in villages but obviously with like deer you can follow a herd of reindeer and you can be migratory cows and sheep both can be moved around quite easily you can walk them to market and things but pigs are a lot less mobile aren't they
2: Yes, a lot less mobile. They do like to walk from time to time, but they're not very good to transport over long distances. And um, this is one of the ideas, actually, that has been put forward to explain the taboo, the prohibition to eat pork in Judaism, because it was um, an animal which was very difficult to move around. Um, And obviously, if you have nomadic groups, this is uh, quite the impediment Um, And also they require a lot of water to survive and to thrive. And obviously, if you're in an area where water is restricted, this is a a species that is not going to be an ideal animal to be keeping. And it's believed that these factors, as well as others, coupled with the fact that the chicken was introduced into the area at some point following the the domestication of the pig, led to some groups to favour the chicken over the pig. And this is where the taboo emerge from because not only do chickens require less water but they also produce eggs and if we think about pigs there's they're an animal that doesn't provide us with many byproducts in the sense you know that a cow provides us with milk or sheep provide us with wool it's just the the meat um so they they are very in a way expensive uh domesticates to have so it's it's interesting that they have become so prominent given how how difficult or challenging it must have been to have them in the first place. You
1: mentioned that the, the pig takes a lot of water and one of the surprising things I learned from the book is although despite we'll regularly say in the summer that we're sweating like a pig, pigs don't actually really sweat, do they? No, they
2: don't. They they don't have the ability. <laughs> Which in a way also ties in with this idea that we think that pigs are dirty. Uh, because they like to roll in the mud, when in fact, actually, they're rolling in the mud because they want to keep themselves cool because they don't have the ability to sweat. Uh, So if they're exposed to the sun or to very high temperatures, that is the only way that they can keep um, their body temperature to a, to an acceptable level, so that's why they like to roll in the mud, not because they're dirty, but because they just want to keep cool. And they're also very prone to getting sunburned, which is also a big problem because it can lead to all sorts of of medical issues in in pigs. Uh, for example, it can lead to abortions in the females, or even reabsorption of of the fetus as a result of the shock from the sunburn.
1: And you can literally buy a pig sunscreen.
2: You can indeed, yes. There's all sorts of brands out there.
1: <laughs> um, say something about how pigs are farmed now. So say, for instance, in the UK or, or the US, I guess. What sort of, What's a typical pig farm like?
2: Pretty productive. It's a non-stop production chain where the females are impregnated on a very regular basis. The farmers obviously take advantage of the fact that the females can um, have several young in a year. They're not constrained like other animals that might only have one litter every year. So this is exploited to the max. Piglets are weaned at at a young age that just aims to maximize the amount of pork that can be produced given the available number of of pigs per farm. And we, we all tend to think that, you know, we're all eating locally reared pork and from very nice farms but as a matter of fact more than 90 percent of pork is mass-produced both here in the UK and in the US so at some point in our lives whether we've had a ham sandwich or anything pork related any pork dish it's it's bound to at some point have been factory farm.
1: But it's not it's not all like that you're talking the book about you've already mentioned Spain in its particular relationship with pork but um you're talking the book about the uh Iberian ham the Iberico ham tell us how that how those pigs are uh are reared and how that ham is made
2: well Iberico ham if you've ever had Iberico ham it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful ham, very, very tasty, and very expensive if you buy the the good variety. They're like la creme de la creme of the of the pig world, and they are basically let loose in um, in one of the regions in Spain, and they just feed on acorns. As much acorns as they want, they just chomp, chomp, eat them all. And then the oleic acid from the acorns then nicely feeds into their muscles, which then gives the ham a very nutty taste and the right amount of, of fat. Uh, so it's a, it's a truly delicious ham, um, but obviously one that requires a lot of land and a lot of trees and um, special care of the pigs. So you, you basically pay for letting those... Those pigs run wild amongst the acorn trees. <music>
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Pia Spry-Marquez, and we're talking about her book, Pig Pork, Archaeology, Zoology and Edibility. Pia, people would be familiar with feeding scraps of food to pigs. I think people have done in the past, and in wartime and things, people would collect their food in the same way that they recycle food now, and this would be fed to pigs. Um, and this seems like a really a green and a good thing to do, but it's actually... Frowned upon, isn't it? Why is this a problem?
2: Well, I think we're still recovering from the shock of foot and mouth, uh, which um, was there was that outbreak back in 2001 that was traced back to uh, swill feeding. And obviously, the National Pig Association of Britain is very concerned that this might happen again. And they're not happy with campaigns like the Pig Idea, which uh, wants legislation to change so we are able to feed the ginormous amount of waste that we produce every year, a part of it, that we can feed it to these omnivorous pigs. But the the National Pig Association is just not happy and there doesn't seem to be any changes going on at the moment and the European Union is also very reluctant to to change its legislation. But cases like the Japanese where um, it is done on a government-sponsored scale have proved that this is a perfectly safe alternative and one that actually helps reduce uh, waste and reduces the amount of soybean that we, we feed to the to the pigs, which also has very, very important repercussions on deforestation and so forth, because most of the, the soya meal and bean that's, that are produced around the globe are to feed farming animals, not to produce, you know, soya yogurts. So it, it would sort of help to very important issues.
1: And you also mentioned in terms of staying with just environmental issues at the moment, um, where there's intensive pig farming, there are also huge problems with disposing of that pig waste. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, so I I talk um, especially about the the case of North Carolina where they have these gigantic pig excrement lagoons uh, where they just um, have built systems... uh, as part of the intensive factory farming, where they just pump out the pig excrement into these giant lakes and then just process it in a way and use the sort of filtered water to then water other things that they might be growing around the area. Uh, They have had many problems with hurricanes making these lagoons overflow uh, which is obviously very catastrophic from an environmental point of view, because if this water then drains to different rivers obviously it it kills um fish and and all the flora around it and I also recently learned that this is also very much a social issue because these lagoons are placed close to very low income areas where um, African Americans live and Hispanics live. There's all sorts of implications, environmental, social, and also health-wise, because many of the populations that live around these excrement lagoons do suffer from, from many kinds of respiratory cancer and many other diseases. So it's it's a big problem arising from factory farming.
1: You talked earlier about the taboos in Judaism and Islam about eating pork and another one of the theories as to why that might be is because of diseases that we can get ourselves from eating pork you've obviously mentioned uh, things like foot and mouth already and the respiratory diseases that can be got from living around the lagoons but what sort of things can we actually catch from eating pork all sorts
2: <laughs> um hepatitis e for example is a common one um everyone tends to talk about trichinella the tapeworm but um there's many many other animals actually that you can get it from so that's trichinella has been um used as a as an explanation for the pig taboo but in fact you can get trichinella from bears and all other all sorts of other animals so it doesn't really um Hold true.
1: It's true to say that in the in those regions of the world where pork isn't eaten, the incidences are much lower, aren't they?
2: Yes, definitely, that is true. And, and I do provide some data uh, from Spain, where pork is, is very popular, and Croatia, they do have many, many more cases of, of trichinosis compared to, say, Israel or other nations where pork is not as widely consumed. So yes, there, there is some correlation there, which might not equal causation. You never know. But yeah, it is true. Um, other diseases. So I came across a very interesting one where you get worms in your brain, neurocysticercosis, which results from the ingestion of eggs of the pork tapeworm. And one of the effects of this is that it can sometimes lead to you growing these worms in your brain. And this is quite prevalent in countries where there might be infection through water um, because there's poor sanitary conditions and so forth. And it's a very prevalent disease in in South America and parts of Asia. And it can lead to chronic headaches. And there's even been a link between the presence of these worms in, in people's brains and reversible Alzheimer's disease there's a type of Alzheimer's that is caused through the presence of this worm and by treating it through a a normal course of antibiotic and you can reverse the symptoms of this type of Alzheimer's I'm not saying it's for for all types of Alzheimer's and it's something that you might not realize you have it you just might have a few headaches from time to time or in the case that that I um, talk about in the book you know she ended up having hallucinations but it's as simple as, as taking a course of antibiotics but it's it's a very horrible disease to have
1: just a couple more things you mentioned the bay of pigs and the um the invasion of the bay of pigs in the book although it turns out that that's actually got nothing whatsoever to do with pigs it's it's been misnamed um, but there was a war or almost a war fought over the killing of a pig i'd never come across this before tell us this story
2: Yes, yeah, so this, this was a war between British Canada and the US, and they were deciding where to draw the line on, on the map and who got hold of of an island. And um, so they all, all decided to settle the island um, until they reached an agreement, and there were American settlers and there were Canadian settlers. And then one of the American settlers had a vegetable patch, and one of the Canadian settlers had... A bunch of animals, including pigs. And apparently there used to be this pig that used to like to go to the American's vegetable patch and eat his potatoes. And one day he said, I've had enough of this pig and killed it. And obviously the Canadian wasn't impressed and it led to very much a, an international conflict of where to draw the line on the map and who did that island really belong to. Um, and then it, was, it wasn't it was violent. It wasn't a violent war. It was finally resolved through international arbitration. But it was caused by the killing of a pig.
1: Just one more thing then. So as well as being a story of you know, the history of our relationship with the pig, this book contains some amazing looking recipes, a couple with with each chapter, but then recently you've decided not to eat pigs anymore. Why not?
2: I've just learned so much by researching this book and writing it, and I've learned so much about pigs, their intelligence, how much they've provided to us, but how little we've given back. You know, something that started as a, a sort of mutualistic relationship, they would come to our settlements to feed off our garbage and we would get rid of that garbage through them has then developed into a relationship in which we're just using and abusing them and they're not getting much in return. And knowing what I know now and knowing that I don't need pork, that I don't need meat, I don't need dairy or eggs to survive, it sort of made sense to honour the pig and everything I had learnt about it by not consuming it anymore. Pigs, for me, are now the the animals, their behaviour, their intelligence, their history, but they're not food.
1: I've been talking to Pia Spry-Marquez. We've been talking about her book, Pig Pork, Archaeology, Zoology and Edibility, which is out now from Bloomsbury. So, Pia, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about
2: it. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can
2: find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
1: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.